Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Uh, Welcome, Center Street Church, uh, to those of you here at Central Campus, also those of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, uh, down in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary. And of course, we welcome those of you who are online. Well, we're in a study of the book of James, and in the passage we're looking at today, James instructs us in how we should respond when life seems hard and unfair. And so would you please stand and join me in reading the passage that we're going to be exploring today. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for uh, the words that you inspired James to write here in the Scriptures. And Lord, we do value them. We see them, Lord, as, as food for our lives, direction for our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would expand our understanding of what you want to say to us uh, in this passage. Not only what you want to say to the people of that day, but to us today. And so we ask that you would help us to remain focused And Lord, you would soften our hearts that we would have the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, virtually everyone in this place has or will face trouble or hardship at some point in their life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, Jesus wasn't being pessimistic when he said this. He was just being realistic. We live in a broken world, a world that is so far from what God intended it to be when he first created it. Some troubles come our way because of wrong choices on our part. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. And still other troubles come our way because of the selfish and sinful choices of other people. When people are greedy, when people are slanderous, when they're dishonest, when people are unforgiving, unkind, or live immoral lives, other people are going to get hurt. That's just the way it is. And Jesus said, expect that. And then there are troubles that we really struggle making sense of, like the sudden death of a loved one or the loss of one's health. 
Here is a young woman who uh, has a huge heart for God, has committed herself to being uh, a full-time missionary for God, but then one day on her way home uh, from college, her car swerves on some black ice and she hits another vehicle head-on. She's paralyzed from the neck on down. And you find yourself asking, well, how do you make sense of that? Some of you are enduring a chronic illness. Or you have a child that's disabled. Or perhaps a child that's making decisions that's tearing your heart out. Others of you have a spouse or a parent with the early, early onset of Alzheimer's. Or perhaps you can't conceive a child that you so desperately want. Or maybe you're just plain lonely. Just can't seem to find a compatible companion. Others of you are struggling with an unexpected job loss or a very difficult or dysfunctional work environment. Perhaps a difficult boss who is not only tyrannical, but is treating you poorly. We've all faced hardship and unfair treatment. And if you haven't, buckle up your seatbelt. Because Jesus said, one day trouble will come your way. Well, in the first century, one of the hardships most people were facing was unfair and unjust, unjust treatment by the rich. In those days, there was no middle class. You were either rich or poor, and most of the people were poor. And the wealthy were not only living in luxury and stockpiling more than they would ever need in several lifetimes, but were either oblivious or just plain insensitive to the needs of the people around them. And so as we learned last time, James gives the wealthy three warnings on the danger of greed or the danger of loving money. He says wealth can tempt you to accumulate more than you need. Secondly, he said, wealth can tempt you to live a life of self-indulgence, of luxury. And thirdly, he said, wealth can tempt you to be insensitive to the needs of others. And this is exactly what many of the rich were doing in James' day. They were living in luxury. They were stockpiling more than they would ever need. Their greed drove them to not only mistreat the poor, but to take advantage of them financially. Now, in the passage that we just read together, James shifts his focus from the wealthy to those who are being taken advantage of by the wealthy, those who are being treated unfairly, those who are facing hardship in their lives. And he essentially asks them, even as he asks all of us today, how are you going to respond when you are treated unfairly? How are you going to respond to the hardships that come your way, however you perceive those hardships to be? And James implies here, when life is hard, when life is unfair, we will face two major, dis uh, major temptations as well. And the first temptation we will face is to take matters into our own hands. When people cheat us, when they mistreat us, we're going to be tempted to take our eyes off the Lord and to strike back, to get even, to
to fight fire with fire. And James implies here, we'll be tempted to become bitter and negative, to grumble and complain a lot. There's just going to be this attitude toward God in which we say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. And it's just going to affect all of our relationships. We're going to find ourselves lashing out, taking out our frustrations on people at work and particularly people that we love the most. We're going to be tempted to lower our integrity to the same level as those who are taking advantage of us. To say, okay, you want to fight dirty? Then I'm going to fight dirty. And as James suggests in verse 12, we're going to be tempted to make promises or oaths knowing full well that we have no intention of keeping them. See, the issue there isn't that it's wrong to take an oath or a vow. They were playing a game. They were making, commit, uh, making oaths and promises in such a way, they were engineering them in such a way that they could wiggle out of them. They did it consistently. And James is saying, these are the kind of things you're going to be tempted to do. The first temptation we face when life gets hard and unfair is to take matters into our own hands. The second temptation we'll face is to give up, to quit, to pack it up and walk away. And in verse 7 to 12, the passage we're looking at today, James pleads with them and us not to fall for these temptations. Don't get sucked into a way of thinking that will ultimately destroy you. No, says James in verse 8, be patient and stand firm. He says, when hard times come your way, when you're treated unfairly, let your response be directed by the following two words. Patience and perseverance. Let's look at them a little more closely. First of all, when life seems hard and unfair, be patient. Look at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James says, learn from the farmer. The farmer does what he can do. He plants the crop. He does the best to remove the weeds. And remember, he's talking to farmers in the first century. They would do what they could do. However, beyond this, the farmer has to trust God to do what he can't do. The farmer can't determine if or when it's going to rain, or even how much it's going to rain. He can't stop hail from falling or pests from destroying the crop. All he can do is plant the seed and then wait patiently for God to do the rest. In the same way, says James, honor God with what you can do. You can pray. 
You can choose to not grumble and complain. You can choose to not seek revenge or to get even with those who have hurt you and or are treating you unfairly. On the other hand, says James, there are things beyond your control, things you need to trust God for, the way that a farmer does. The farmer is patient, believing that there will be a harvest, even though for a period of time he sees no physical evidence that there's ever going to be a harvest. In the same way, we must be patient, believing that God's working behind the scenes, even though in the present moment, we see no evidence of that at all. A delay, friends, does not mean a denial. Patience is believing that while I'm waiting, God is working. James says, be patient. Knowing that Jesus is coming again. Which means God's in control. There are no stopping his purposes in this world. He's coming again. And as surely as he came the first time, he will come again. And that's going to be a day when God makes all things right, when wrongs will be made right, when justice will be done. And that those who have hurt you will have to answer to God. Those who think that perhaps they got away with it in this life won't get away with it because God will make all things right. Sometimes when life is hard and unfair, have you ever noticed that you get impatient with God? Did you find yourself a bit tempted to kind of try to help him out? To get engaged and, you know, move things along a little bit because he's just not getting it? Pastor Philip Brooks was pacing the floor one day like a caged lion and somebody in the room turned to him and said, Dr. Brooks, what's the trouble? And Brooks replied, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry. But God isn't. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wanted God to hurry up, do something in your life? Perhaps you're dealing with some injustice, or maybe it's some unfairness or frustration at work. Or you've prayed and you've done what you can do, but nothing seems to be changing. Nothing seems to be happening. James implies it's times like those that we need to exercise patience. We need to trust in God in his perspective, in his timing, in his ways, in his wisdom. You know, in Psalm 46, God says, Be still and know that I am God. The psalmist says, When trouble comes and you're filled with fear, don't try to take matters into your own hands. No, stop. Be still, which means relax, let go. Stop your striving. Be patient and focus on God and his perspective. Now, folks, our God is a good God. 
who knows our needs more than we do, who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. In Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, please note, this verse does not say that everything, hap- that, everything that happens to us is good. No, it acknowledges that trouble and bad things come our way. But he assures us that God can use them to accomplish good in our lives or the lives of others. Neither does this verse promise that God will bring good out of bad for everyone. No, it says this promise applies only to those who love him. But for those of us who know and love God, of this we can be certain. Whatever calamity or adversity we're in, we can know with confidence that God has a loving and good purpose in it. Johnny Erickson Tata, the age of 17, had a swimming accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. For the past 50 years, she has been confined to a wheelchair. And when she was with us a while ago, she said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And she went on to say, I'd rather be in a wheelchair with Jesus than to be on my feet without him. And in those statements, she was revealing what really matters to God. Having a close friendship with him. It isn't all about our comfort and our happiness. She was revealing why God sometimes permits what he hates to come into our lives. Sometimes it is to get our attention. To wake us up to his reality. To not miss the most important decision we'll ever make in life. And that's our relationship with him. Sometimes it may be to draw us closer to himself. Because perhaps, you know, our, our, our walk with God or more accurately our Christianity is just defined by going through the motions. We really don't know him. We kind of know about him. And he wants to know us. He wants to engage us. It might be to build our character. Or it may be to get our eyes off the lesser temporary things of life and to focus more clearly on the eternal things of life. Things that are really going to matter in the end. And so first of all, James says here, when life seems hard and unfair, you're going to be tempted to take matters into your own hands, but don't do it. Be patient knowing that God loves you. He has your best interests at heart. And whether you see it or not, is accomplish things, accomplishing things for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Furthermore, when life seems hard and unfair, you're going to be tempted 
to give up. And again, James challenges us not to do so, but to stand firm, to persevere, to keep on keeping on. Look at verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James says, look at the example of the Old Testament prophets like Job, who in the midst of unbelievable trouble stood firm and persevered. Job was the wealthiest man who ever lived in his day, had everything going for him, And then in just two short days, everything fell apart. His children were murdered. Everything he had was destroyed. And he himself ended up with a deadly, painful disease. His friends said, Job, we have a word for you from God. It's all your fault. There's some deep, dark sin, obviously, in your life that you haven't dealt with. And as if that wasn't enough, his wife says, God's the problem, Job. Curse God and die. She had the gift of encouragement. (laughs) You see, Job had every reason in the world to give up, to pack it in, and to curse God and to walk away from God. But he didn't. Oh, he questioned God like 40 chapters worth. He let God know his honest feelings because none of this made any sense. But he never turned his back on God. Even though his friends tried to convince him that he was being punished by God for something he did wrong. And even though his wife was convinced that God is a sadistic despot who delights in our pain, Job tenaciously hung on to his conviction that God is good. Job refused to relinquish his faith in God or his belief that God is a loving and a good God. Even as Lamentations 3.33 says that God does not willingly bring affliction or grief on anyone. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Or take the example of Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old when God told him through a dream... He had a very special plan for his life, including that he would be in a position of power, not only over his family, but over nations. Joseph innocently, at least we believe it was pretty innocently, he goes to his family, his brothers included, and he tells them about this dream, and his brothers who have already been struggling with some envy toward Joseph, you know, this pretty much pushes them over the edge. They're totally incensed with his apparent egotism, And they sell him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt where he's sold to be a slave 
in the house of the captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. Now Joseph's a good-looking fellow, and before long his master's wife tries to seduce him. And Joseph wants to live his life God's way, and so he refuses, and he literally runs out of the house. But you see, he has scorned Potiphar's wife, who now accuses him of rape. And so he ends up in prison and spends the next 10 years, pretty much his 20s, in bondage and misery. And you know, we say that so quickly, 10 years. 10 years in prison for something he's innocent of. His entire 20s in bondage. Some of you in college feel that sometimes. Now imagine what Joseph must be feeling, what he must be thinking at this point. God, remember this plan that, that, that you had for my life? You know, people are going to actually bow down and serve me. Was, was I just, did I just make that up or was that really from you? So far, Lord, I've been beaten up. I've been thrown in a pit. I've been sold into slavery and now I'm rotting in prison. Did I miss something? Did I do something to deserve this? Undoubtedly, his hope was fleeting. Despair was setting in. And some of you know what this is like. Some of you have experienced this in your marriage. You just keep hoping. But after a while, you feel like you just can't hope anymore. Or some of you have experienced that with your children. Your children or a child has gone down a bad path and you just keep hoping and praying. But at some point, you, you, you just can't go there emotionally anymore. You can't take being disappointed one more time. Some of you battle with an illness. And you know the roller coaster of emotions. You get good news and then you get bad news. You pray until you don't even know what to pray about anymore. And after a while, you just feel like you can't hope anymore. And that must have been how Joseph felt. I mean, at every turn, it just seemed like his situation was going from bad to worse. And yet he stood firm. He refused to give up. He refused to change his mind about God. Now, why was he able to do that? Because he made a decision to trust God with his life. He surrendered his life to God, firmly believing that God had his best interests at heart, that God was in control, that God is a 
good God who's working out his purposes in his life, even though his circumstances seem to communicate the exact opposite. And that not only gave him deep peace, but it nurtured hope in his life in the midst of the greatest disappointments of life. He simply refused to give up. When Joseph ended up as a slave in Potiphar's home, you know, it would have been easy for him to say at that point, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I I give up. I'm done with this. I may have to work for Potiphar the rest of my life, but I don't have to like it. I mean, I'm going to go on autopilot. I'm just going through the motions. And yet, you see, during one of the lowest points of his life, Joseph is reminded of a great truth, even as Job was reminded. A truth that was directed at various various characters in the Old Testament, a truth that we read in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, which says, And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. He was not alone. The Lord was with him in the midst of his loneliness, his hardship, and his disappointment. Because God was with him, Joseph made a decision to be faithful and obedient to his God. And in doing so, he won over the admiration and the trust of his master, Potiphar, who in turn made Joseph his overseer, the chief officer of his staff, so to speak. Because Joseph didn't quit, he set into motion the deepening of his own faith and the development of his character that would one day enable him to become the most effective leader in all of Egypt and fulfill the role that God had in mind for him. Now, folks, I want to remind you that if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then God has chosen you to play a unique role, however small or however significant it may be, in the redemption of the world. And he has been preparing you for that role all along. It may have been at the University of Cairo instead of the dungeons of Cairo. But he's been preparing you. Do you realize that? My question is, do you ever quit something when you're disappointed or hurt? Do you ever pack up and run? The truth is, quitting is always easier than standing firm. It's always easier to stop and have a donut than run another lap. It's always easier to leave a meeting angry and nurse a grudge than it is to stay in that meeting and do the hard work of reconciliation. When trouble comes our way, the option of giving up on God and quitting, you know, it can look very appealing. Perhaps your marriage isn't anything like you thought it would be. 
It requires a lot of hard work, and you didn't sign up for this. You just want out. Or maybe you're disappointed with your job or your ministry. I mean, you had planned for some great things. You thought God called you to have a much greater impact than you're having. You dreamed that your job, your influence, your ministry would grow leaps and bounds, or you envisioned rapidly climbing the ladder of the organization. But here you are. It's not anything that you envisioned it to be originally. And so you're thinking of bailing out. John Workberg says, quitting may bring temporary relief. But every time you do, it chisels away at your character and makes quitting a little easier next time. Strong character and faith in God gets forged when you stand firm even though you feel like giving up. That's the kind of resolve that builds great friendships. That's the kind of resolve that builds great marriages and families and great churches. When people buckle down and say, even though life has not turned out the way that I planned or hoped, even though I'm disappointed in my present situation, God has called me to this. And so I'm standing firm. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to be like Joseph. Whatever you're going through, however tempted you are to give up, hear this. God is with you. He's working behind the scenes and he's forging your character through it all. So don't give up. Stand firm. Let him fulfill his purpose for your life. Well, we know the day came when the dream that God had given to Joseph became reality. He was miraculously promoted from a prison cell to a palace, became second in command. And the day came when Joseph's brothers would bow before him begging for food during a time of great famine which you will remember is the reason and the plan that God had for Joseph. And Joseph could have made them pay for selling him as a slave some 15 years earlier. But Joseph jo joyously revealed his identity to them because he knew that all the Stuff he went through, all the hardship and the unfair treatment was part of God's greater plan in life. Oh, he didn't see it at the time. But 15 years later, as he looked back, he saw it as clear as ever. And that's why in Genesis 15, verse 19, he said to his brothers who were shaking in their boots, he said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
See, Joseph realized that even in the darkest moments of those 13 years, God was working. And folks, God takes our choices. We must realize this. God takes our choices, no matter how bad or how sinful they are. He weaves them into the outcome of his holy purposes for our lives. And that's why he's God and we're not. James says, be patient. Stand firm. Persevere. Knowing that no person, no circumstance can frustrate God's purpose for your life. If you're in the middle of one of those 13-year periods of darkness right now, I remind you that we serve a good God who sees the whole picture. And he has our best interests at heart in all things. But God says, I need you to trust me. I need you to surrender your life completely to me. Because I see things that you don't see. I know things that you don't know. Job's life and Joseph's life teach us that God is far more interested in deepening our character and our relationship with him than he is elevating our happiness or our comfort. And he will use whatever comes along to shape our character because our ultimate destiny is not so much about what we do with our lives or what we achieve for him, but on who we are becoming in him. Now please understand, it's wonderful that in God's plan, the second half of Job's life was more blessed than the first. It's wonderful that in God's plan, Joseph went from prison to the palace. But we have to remember that sometimes God's plan is that we die in prison. And that does not mean that God is any less faithful. That does not mean that God loves us any less. It does not mean that God is punishing us. It does not mean that God does not have a plan for us. What it means is that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge. I really wish, you know, that I could tell you that if you commit yourself to God and you walk in faith, everything's going to be just peachy. That you will have a nice life and you won't have any problems. And there are preachers that will tell you that. They'll tell you that if you just follow their prescribed formula, you'll get it all. I mean, you're going to get the six-figure salary, you're going to get the mansion, you're going to get the girl, the Porsche, and the white picket fence. But it's simply not true. Look around the world, folks. There are people in the world, millions of people in the world, who love Jesus way more than we do. And they have next to nothing. The truth is, sometimes life's really hard. And sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes it seems unfair. And yeah, we wonder where God is in all of this. It's in those moments when we're disappointed, when we're disillusioned with God, we have to make a choice. We can get bitter and angry, 
we can walk away from God and lose all hope, which if you really think about it, accomplishes absolutely nothing, just leaves us in a state of despair. Or we can choose to believe what God says about himself and about his love and care for us is true even though it doesn't line up with our present circumstances. Sometimes, this is something that Johnny Erickson says, sometimes when you've got all your theological ducks lined up in a row, explanations just don't cut it. Ten biblical reasons as to why all this negative stuff is happening just doesn't do it. What you long for more than anything during times like that, she says, is not something, but someone. The Lord. It's like a child who's hurting and in tears, looking up in the face of her daddy. She's not looking for answers. She does not need reasons so much as for daddy just to reach down and to lift her up and hold her close and to say, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Daddy's here. That's really what we long for. The fatherly assurance that even though our world is spinning out of control, there is one who loves us who is very much in control. And that everything will be okay. Friends, I may not be able to tell you why you're facing hardships in your life. But as one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I can tell you, whatever the problem, whatever crisis, you need not face it alone. God's presence is with you. His purpose for you does not change. Whatever path you go on, you don't travel it alone. He's with you to the very end because he's as real as I am standing here. You know, so often when we're in the middle of a storm, our first response is emotional. And that's understandable. It's natural. But the way to peace is not to respond by what we feel. It is to respond by what we know. We may not know, says Joseph Stowell, we may not know how it's all going to work out, but we know the God who will work it out. And friends, one day, we're all going to realize the truth that knowing God is better than knowing the outcomes. And so relax in the sovereign character of God. Pray without ceasing. But as you do, as you wait on the Lord, face your circumstances with the sure confidence that God will work all things together for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And as you do, you will discover 
that when all you have left is God, God is enough. Would you stand for closing prayer? just open our hands before the Lord again and let's ask those two questions Lord what are you saying to me and Lord what is what is it that you want me to do about it what's one step you want me to take what's one attitude you want me to change What's one belief you want me to embrace? I'm just going to ask our prayer partners if you'd come up and just be at the front facing the congregation and I'm going to also ask any pastors that are here that you would also just make your way up here because friends we want to pray for you we want to pray for anyone here who's just burdened down right now you're dealing with some crisis or you're dealing with some issue in your life and you just, you just need prayer there are people that are making their way up here Lord making their way up here who want to pray for you so I'm just going to encourage you even right now just to get up make your way out into the aisle and come down here and spend some time in prayer over this issue surrendering your life completely to God and surrendering this issue to Him you just come we're just going to wait a few moments I'm going to close in prayer in just a few moments Father, thank you for these words you inspired James to write. The challenge, Lord, to be patient and to persevere, even when life is hard and so unfair. Lord, there are times when we can totally relate to how Joseph must have felt when he was forgotten in prison. But thank you for the reminder that while he was forgotten by others, Lord, he was not forgotten by you. 
we affirm today that you are a good, faithful, loving God. We see your love demonstrated through your son, Jesus, who became flesh, died on a cross so that we might have eternal life and be restored in our relationship with you. We know that, but sometimes, Lord, our circumstances in life just overwhelm us. Sometimes it feels like you're nowhere to be found. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who's feeling that right now, that you will give them hope, Lord, that you will remind them by your spirit that you love them, that you have their best interests at heart, and that you can be trusted. Lord, I pray that you will deepen our conviction that you are who you say you are, and that we just won't let that go in the midst of whatever it is we're facing. That we will not run away from you, Lord, but we will turn to you. We'll run to you. For when we do, you will meet us, Lord, and give us the strength we need to keep on keeping on. I pray for marriages here today. I pray for families. I pray for friendships. I pray for individuals. Oh, God, that you will bring hope and healing into these lives, Lord, into these relationships, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 